Good afternoon. This is week three uh, in what I hope to be a, a uh, well, I, I not necessarily hope to be, but we will continue to videotape the Sunday school lessons until whatever time we're able to go back to our regular Sunday school session, which probably won't be until the fall. So uh, I, I hope that you will look forward to joining me each week for these videotaped Sunday school lessons. I, I want to go right into the lesson today because I'm not real sure how long it's going to take, but I am committed to keeping it within the half hour that's allotted for it. So well, let me go ahead and open us with prayer, and then we'll get started with the lesson. Father, we know that you are a mighty and a merciful God. Uh, you have sent your Son to uh, heal our broken lives, and we are grateful for that. And we are eternally grateful for that, Father, so we thank you. But we also praise you this afternoon, Father, for that you have also sent healing and doctors and nurses and others to care for the sick and the suffering in body and in spirit. We thank you for them. But today we do claim your promise of wholeness and life. And Father, as we pray for those who are ill in body or mind and who long for your healing touch, we ask that you would this day, uh, that the weak might be made strong and the sick might be made healthy, the broken might be made whole, and that you would confirm those who serve them as agents of your eternal love. Father, we also ask that we may all be renewed in vigor, uh, that when we consider uh, what is going on, and that uh, in terms of uh, the sick being made whole and uh, made healthy, and the weak being made strong as to whence that come, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would, you would encourage us to be vigorous and pointing to the risen Christ, who for our sake conquered death so that we might have life eternal. And these things we ask in His precious name. Amen. All right, today I want to go back to what we were talking about last week, which was the, the young, rich young ruler who came to Christ and asked him about what he needed to do in order to be or to have eternal life. And, of course, I'm not going to read that whole thing, or I'm not going to review that whole thing, but I do want to use part of it as a segue into what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, and you will open them to uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter, three verses I want to read. I want to start with the 16th verse, and here we find a rich young man. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, he was looking for eternal life. He had everything else in life. He did not have that sense of eternity as far as his life was concerned. Then jump down to uh, verse 23. And this, uh, he, Jesus has already given him some instructions about what he might do in order to have eternal life. The young man said, I've done all of those things. What else can I do? And Jesus then gives him the news that he must sell all that he has uh, and then come and follow him. And then, of course, because he had so much, uh, he was disappointed in that and dejected. He walked away. And then, of course, Jesus turns and he, he, he uh, addresses his disciples who were standing nearby. And he said in the verse 23, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are three, three words or three expressions that were used there that essentially mean the same thing. One of them is eternal life. 
The other is, of course, kingdom of heaven, and the third one is kingdom of God. And in, this, in the context of what's being talked about here, all three of those are used differently, but at the same time, they are situated, mean the same thing, which is the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.15, if you flip over there very quickly, you'll find out what that purpose is. As Paul is explaining it to his young protege, Timothy, and he's in, giving him some instructions, and he says in verse 15, he said, This is a faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptance. So everybody ought to accept this. This is, this is the, uh, a believable saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Uh, and I suspect that most of us probably would say, well, no, Paul, I wish I were had been as good as you. I'm certainly chief among sinners. Uh, that, that's probably something we would all uh, unashamedly say that we, we would uh, uh, confess to that being us. That's us. We are chief among sinners. Now, again, one of the, one of the words is sometimes that's, that's used to talk about the occasion when we come face-to-face -face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and with all of the people that are in our Sunday school class, I'm sure that there is an individual story that has meaning to you about your intersectionality or your intersection with the Savior. Now, when we have an intersection of the Savior and His purpose is to bring us to salvation, that can only end in two ways. We can accept Him as Savior or we can reject Him as Savior. And if we reject Him as Savior, He becomes automatically judge. There's some verses over in, in uh, Matthew that I wanted to read. Matthew 11, if you would flip there. Then an interesting verse here, or verses, the, the kind that, is, that are often uh, give rise to me traveling down some rabbit path as I, as I uh, uh, start talking about this, and I trust that I won't do that today. Uh, but if you would look at uh, the 11th chapter of Matthew, starting with the 16th verse, here Jesus is talking about, he's sort of reminiscing, if you will, or talking out loud about his state and what he finds in that, the condition he finds himself in with regard to uh, the people that he has come to save and how he is being received. In verse 16, the 11th chapter of Matthew, he says, But to what shall I liken this generation? What, you know, what sort of a situation do I find myself in? It's kind of like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Now, if, if you go to a commentary, and a commentary will tell you really what Jesus is trying to do is liken himself and also John the Baptist to, the, to children playing tunes on flutes. Uh, it's, it's almost like you, you remember when you were in the 6th or 7th grade and you, uh, the teachers were trying to teach you some social skills and they all took you to uh, one period, a free period or something, took you to the gymnasium and wanted you to dance. You know, little boys dancing with little girls. And you always found people who were willing to do that, but you also found a lot who, uh, you know, who were very reluctant to do that. And that's the, the, kind of the image that you have here. Jesus is saying, I came and I played the flute. I preached the gospel. Nobody wanted to dance. John, he was a much different kind of a preacher. He mourned, we mourned to you and you did not lament. Sort of characterizing the kind of way, the harsh way in which John brought the gospel message. But both he and John were rejected. In the 18th verse, he says, For well, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. 
So John was much too dour. He was too harsh. So he was not acceptable. And then 19, the verse 19, he says, the son of man, talking about himself, he came eating and drinking and they said, look, he's a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Another one of those interesting sayings that you'll find in the Bible. Uh, it, it probably has evolved into our grandparents. It's something maybe your grandmother might have said or your mother may have even said it uh, when they wanted to, uh, to kind of make a point about the outcome of something. They might say, well, the proof is in the pudding. Jesus said the wisdom is justified by her children. And what he's talking about here is that when the gospel message is preached, whether it's preached dour and harsh or whether it's preached as he, a much easier way, if you will, eating and drinking and, 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 and uh, drinking wine and being a friend of sinners and so forth. Regardless of which way the gospel message is delivered, the proof of whether it's effective or not is in fact the results of that ministry. And of course, we know that in Jesus's ministry, the results were the blind were seeing, the lame were walking, the lepers were being cleansed, the deaf were hearing, the dead were being raised, and the poor have uh, good news preached to them, which of course was not what was happening with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus comes as our Savior. And he comes as our Savior, of course, in today's world through the, the, the preaching and teaching of the Word. And of course, if we reject the preaching of the teaching of the Word, regardless of how it's preached, then we, of course, we open ourselves to, of course, Jesus not becoming our Savior, but in fact, our judge. And if you will look over in Matthew, the seventh chapter, you will find what that entails. Matthew 7, 22. Jesus here is talking about judgment day. And he's talking about uh, uh, in that day, in the Lord's day, if you will, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, that, that's, uh, if, we, if we look, obviously, at Jesus' purpose is to bring salvation to the lost, to the sinner, and the sinner can either reject or can uh, uh, accept him as Savior. But whatever, there's only one thing, the only one acceptable response to Jesus' message of the gospel is humble repentance. Now, we're going to talk about today a, a guy that uh, probably epitomized. If you looked up sinner you know, in your handy-dandy funk and wagnall dictionary, you probably would see a picture of this guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a publican, and he had a divine appointment with Jesus in Jericho. Now, this, this appointment is, is, is talked about in, in all of the Gospels, but it's talked about specifically in Luke 19, first 10 chapters. If you have your Bible, turn over there. Let's quickly look at this account of Jesus' intersectionality or intersectional divine appointment with Zacchaeus. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Well, interesting thing about Luke, 
Uh, Luke has a, uh, he, he probably talked about publicans in the book of Luke maybe eight or nine different times. And each time he talked about them, he didn't talk about them in a very disparaging way. He always had something good to say about them. Now, on its face, if you look at that verse in the second verse there, he said he was a tax collector. And of course, if you put that in parentheses, most people of, certainly of that time would have thought, you know, this is a sorry, no good rascal here. This is not only a secular sinner, but he's also a spiritual sinner. And then sort of that in parenthetically says, and he was rich. Uh, so he, he had something good to say about him, even though he uh, characterized him as a tax collector, which everybody accepted as being really a bad character. And he sought to see who Jesus was. When, when Jesus came to the Jericho and was moving down the street, he was being followed by lots of people. And the crowd sort of preceded him as everybody ran along the, the street trying to get in front of him so they could get a good view. And as he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. Most of us will remember in, in Bible school, or certainly when we were in, in the early Christian education programs, we sang the song about the wee little man, Zacchaeus, climbed up into a sycamore tree. Verse 4 says, he said, he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When we look at Zacchaeus, we certainly could say from all appearances, he was lost. We also, in Luke's account, we also know that he was a very rich man. We talked about publicans before. One of Jesus' apostles was also a publican, a tax collector. We know that uh, publicans were sort of given the the franchise for collecting taxes in the air by Rome in the area in which they lived. And they could pretty much do anything they wanted to do in, in terms of extracting money from the populace. They certainly didn't have to apply as long as they got enough to satisfy Rome. Anything else they got, that was fine with Rome. And so they, they all were rich. They were all unscrupulous. They were all people who were out of not only their own greed and sense of self-importance, but they were despised by the people because they were acting on Rome's behalf. Now, the interesting thing was is that, that Zacchaeus, as the word says, Zacchaeus sought to see who Jesus was. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but the word tells us, pure and simple, is that nobody seeks Jesus without first having been convicted that they, that, uh, of, of, them, of their sins or of any way of their condition in life. And so Zacchaeus, we can, we can infer from the fact that he sought to see Jesus, that he was already either through curiosity or through his own conscience, which had been convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason that he sought to see who Jesus was. An interesting thing about this, this curiosity or conscience we live in a world today where uh, most churches, evangelical churches especially, 
are, are very sensitive to people who are seekers. Uh, and we, we, it's a disparaging term, but it's still a term that's used quite frequently in describing churches who are seeker-friendly, is that we try to accommodate those who are seeking by trying to make the churches and the church programs and the church facilities seeker-friendly. We want to put things there that we find, that, that we hope anyway, that they will find to be culturally relevant, that they, find, they will find to be comfortable, uh, that they will find to be friendly, etc. So we don't know exactly why, what his motives were, but we know it was either through curiosity or conscience that he came there. Now we know that, that Christians, uh, and I say I can, I think I can say this unequivocally, is that all of us who ultimately come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we did that as a result of the convicting power in our heart. We didn't, we didn't plan it. We didn't deliberately seek it out ourselves. We were convicted to do it by the power of the Spirit that works within us. We're, we're initially given that faith in order to seek to have faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had had his, his the, the, the Holy Spirit had, had visited with Zacchaeus, even though Zacchaeus wasn't aware of it, and had given him enough faith that he sought to see who Jesus was. And once he saw who Jesus was, and then he had that encounter with Jesus, and Jesus looks up in the tree and calls him by name. And of course, Zacchaeus immediately, I'm sure, probably wondered who himself. How do you know my name? And not only did he know his name, he says, come down out of the tree because I must stay at your house today. It was a divine appointment that Christ had with Zacchaeus. Now, one thing about divine appointments, uh, we've all had them. Uh, sometimes we understand what they are when they happen. Sometimes we don't understand what a divine appointment is until after it's happened. And oftentimes we rue the fact that we didn't respond you know, appropriately in that chance that we've been given. And that, of course, is one of the, one of the side lessons, if you will, of this particular story uh, in, in Luke about Zacchaeus is how do we respond? Do we see him as our savior or do, we, or do we, because of our rejection or our procrastination, see him as a judge or he becomes our judge when we reject his, his uh, salvation? But obviously, according to the scripture there, we look and see, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, 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 I, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Now, Zacchaeus, we don't know what went on at home. We don't know what they had for, for dinner. We don't know whether Jesus stayed the night or was going to stay three or four days, but we know that it obviously had a tremendous impact on Zacchaeus because at the, at the close of this meeting that they had and Jesus staying in his home, Zacchaeus then confesses to the Lord, that he's going to give half of his goods, all of his, half of the money that he has, he's going to give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone else by false accusation, he's going to restore it fourfold. Now, we don't, we don't have to understand that the accounting of all of that, and I'm sure that that was a lot of people that he was going to have to restore fourfold to, because he probably uh, cheated half of the people, or more than that, he probably cheated everybody that came, came by him and was paying taxes. And the law didn't require that he restore it fourfold. 
But that's what he said he was going to do. So his meeting, his convicting, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and his meeting with, with Jesus had encouraged him or had changed him as a person to the extent that he wanted to make sure that he went beyond what the law required in restoration to those that he had cheated. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. And what he means by that is, is that regardless of what he was, he is a man of faith. And like Abraham, his faith has, he is counted as righteousness. And so he is a son of Abraham. Now, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about this, this uh, afternoon, something we, we, we refer to as the fruits of salvation. You know, we sometimes refer to the fruits of the Spirit, and we talk about all of the things that the fruits of the Spirit are, the, the different characteristics of our Christian behavior, which we can identify as the fruits of salvation. Now, one of the things that, uh, one of the, going back to this thing called criticism, the usual criticism is, is that, well, what does, what uh, should people expect when we uh, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've, I've used that expression, you know, the, the lordship principle or the non-lordship principle uh, or the no-lordship principle, if you will, and what that has, to, what it means to some people. Those people who are advocates of this theological position of no-lordship say that saving faith is, in fact, saving faith. Except the four truths of the gospel, I'm a sinner He's a savior. Uh, he died for my sins, and I have faith, and my faith in him really gives me eternal life. So if we accept those four truths, that's all we've got to do. And of course, then the, 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 the counter to that of the lordship people is not only do we accept the four truths, but there's more beyond that that we have to do. Just as, as uh, uh, Zacchaeus was doing here, uh, just as Jesus asked uh, are requested that the young young ruler do, uh, and others that, that we've already talked about in terms of those who've experienced the power. They've had their intersection with Christ, and they're responding. Some, of course, like the rich young ruler, did not respond uh, appropriately. He went away dejected. But Zacchaeus, he responded with an open heart. He was eager. He was generous. He was obedient. And he was, as, as described in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the purpose of salvation, Paul is talking here to the, to the Christians there in Corinth, and, and he's telling them that what you must be like uh, if, in fact, you come to faith in Christ. We've, uh, I've read this verse. I thought I'd have an easy time just flipping to it. <coughs> Five. And this is, again, the Apostle Paul. I'm going to start at verse 16. It says, therefore, from now on, Paul talking to the, the, the church in Corinth, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He's gone. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. And he's ascended into heaven. So we don't know Christ anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. <coughs> old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliating, or uh, reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then... 
The kicker. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have to be, as Paul goes on to say, we have to be new creatures. We must be transformed because we are in Christ and He is in us. And so the purpose of salvation is to become like Christ. Now, I wanted to close today, go back over to Luke and and give you another picture which is somewhat similar to uh, sort of contextually it's, it's, it's a part of what we're talking about today. Uh, Jesus is talking about early on we talked about in, in uh, coming as a savior and what Jesus was saying is this generation that we've come into I, both he and John came into a generation he, he preached the gospel in one way John preached the gospel in another way both had followings of people but they had a completely different techniques John the Baptist in Luke 3 8 I wanted to read what he said uh, just to give you sort of a uh, I, I will say it's a it's the something to think about as you go home you're already home then he said to the multitudes this is, this is in the third chapter starting with the seventh verse John preaching to the multitudes and there were many people who came out uh, to hear John the Baptist because he was rep- he was preaching repentance and he was re- preaching it in a very harsh and a very hard way. And so to the multitudes that came out and surrounded him and followed him, they came out to be baptized by him and he addressed them in this particular circumstance saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So rather than being seeker friendly, if you will, uh, John was doing what Jesus did in a completely different way. But John was doing the same thing as Jesus did with with, uh, the, the, the young man who came to him and wanted to know what he had to do for eternal life. Uh, essentially the same thing he did when, when he came to Zacchaeus, even though the outcome was different. But John did it, and he did it in a, some, in, in a way that I would, I would say that he was addressing this thing called shallow repentance. And that cannot be a part of our strategy, if you will, or our response to, to our intersection with Christ. Is shallow repentance, humble repentance, is required. Shallow repentance is certainly not required, nor is it desired. And that's what John is trying to do here. He has all of these people who are, who are gathering around him, getting on the bandwagon. He recognized what they were doing. These were people who had not repented, but they wanted to be baptized. They were saying they had repented, but they had not at all repented. And he tells them, get on out of here. Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're just trying to save your, uh, yourself. You need to leave and go and bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children. And what he's saying here is it doesn't matter what kind of a, a Jew you might consider yourself to be and just because Abraham may be somewhere in your, your ethnic heritage, that doesn't make you a child of Abraham. What makes you a child of Abraham is faith. And from faith that gives you a claim to righteousness. And so that's what well, I wanted to end with that today, just to remind us that even though we are called to be transformed by the power of the gospel according to Jesus, 
we're also in that transformation. It cannot be a shallow repentance. It has to be a sincere repentance uh, to, to leave behind those characteristics that used to govern our lives and to be what Christ has called us to be, and it is to be like him. Let me close. Father, again, we thank you for your truth. We ask, O oh Lord, that we might take that, uh, we make it a part of our, our heart and our conscience, and let it guide us daily. Uh, Father, to superintend all of our actions in all things that we do. In Jesus' precious name, amen.